0: Welcome to Here We Grow, a grassroots podcast by Southwest Georgia Farm Credit focused on education and inspiring growth down on the farm, at home, and in rural communities. Whether you're a farmer or farm her, advocate, land lover, or southern dweller, we have industry experts and homegrown leaders ready to share their insights with you. Thanks for listening. Welcome to Here We Grow. I'm your host, Billy Billings, a relationship manager with Southwest Georgia Farm Credit. Today's podcast theme is Hunt and Gather. Our guest speakers and I will discuss cultivating the perfect South Georgia habitat for wildlife, especially wild turkey, and how to search and collect prize artifacts on your property. This episode features commentary by Michael Chamberlain and Kevin Dowdy. Michael and Kevin, thanks for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us. so much for
0: All right. First on my list today is Dr. Mike Chamberlain. He is the Terrell Distinguished Professor of Wildlife Ecology and Management at the University of Georgia. He is widely recognized as the leading authority on wild turkeys and has been conducting applied research on the bird for the past 30 years. Mike did his undergraduate work at Virginia Tech University and his MS and PhD degrees from Mississippi State. Thanks again for joining us, Mr. Mike.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Yes, sir. Well, you know, deer season just ended. It's still pretty cold, but uh, us hunters, you know, as soon as one season ends, we start thinking about the other. And I'm definitely thinking about the Thunder Chicken of Southwest Georgia. So um, appreciate you joining us. Uh, as I did some research on you, I, I realized that you, you're kind of a big man in the turkey world. So it means a lot for you to come on and join us today. And uh, I can't wait to hear what you have to share with us. So just kind of start from your end. Let us know what what you do on. On properties to help manage for wild turkey, where you're kind of seeing the turkey population in our area trend and uh, what's going on in the turkey world.
1: Yeah. So, as far as what's going on in the turkey world, um, I think I think most people probably look right now at the the ongoing declines that that we've seen across many areas of the South and East. Um, not all not all areas, but but most states have have reported declines over the past couple of decades and um can go into a little bit of why that is but that gives people like me <laughs> gives gives us a job to do so um as far as kind of the the status uh, right now you know there's a lot of ongoing work trying to figure out you know exactly what's driving these declines um we know we have pretty good answers to to some of the questions and we have pretty good unknowns uh when it comes to some of the other the other questions that pop up i think one thing that that most hunters uh, uh, at least in my neck of the woods will agree with is they are generally seeing and hearing fewer birds than they were say 10 years ago and and although there are some exceptions, that causes people quite a bit of pause, particularly as, as they start thinking about turkey season, like you like you mentioned. So um, that's pretty much what I've focused a lot of my attention on the past two decades is trying to understand, you know, what's driving turkey populations and how can we ensure that they're sustainable and that that 20 years and 50 years from now that we have the, the numbers of birds that we want
0: one thing i've always when when i'm talking with my landowners and um, my fellow hunters is is when to burn when not to burn obviously you have your your timber guys your land managers that are that are helping you bring out your most return on your your timber but as far as intrinsic values and helping the wildlife i know that burning brings out a lot of, of undergrowth and vegetation for i mean whitetails quail what do you, what do you recommend and i mean as far as burning for for Turkey populations and, and turkey properties.
1: Yes, yeah, so it really depends a lot on where you are, what part of the world you're living in, but but here in Georgia, for the most part, we found that that a two year fire return interval, two to three year interval, meaning you're you're going back into the same stands and burning them on a, you know, two to three every two to three years. That seems to be pretty consistent with wild turkeys, it, it provides a, uh, a suite of vegetative, you know, structure that they need, nesting cover, brooding cover. Once you get beyond about three years in our soils down down here, you're transitioning from what is turkey habitat to what's not, and, and the data we collect are pretty clear in showing that, that, that once you get beyond about year three... Uh broods do not use those stands and and it's it's quite rare for for nests to occur in those stands as well so so usually about a, a two to three year uh interval seems to be about right for turkeys the The one thing that I get a lot of questions about is is you know timing and obviously you you'd like to avoid the peak of the nesting season. Um, but if you're forced to burn during that time, you you just want to make sure that you, the scale, you know, you kind of keep an eye on the scale of the fire. In other words, how large the the burn unit is and try to minimize the size of those units if you're burning during the the peak of nesting season, which is in Georgia's mid-April to mid-May. Otherwise, you know, we we've seen pretty clearly that that turkeys are inextricably linked to fire, and what I mean by that is they they benefit tremendously from the application of prescribed fire, and and in the southeast they're adapted to using stands that are burned. Um, those those fires are producing fords, they're producing cover, and more importantly, they're they're maintaining the vegetation at a level at which turkeys can see over and through it. And that's how turkeys survive. That's how they make a living is being able to to see danger before it gets to them. And the application of fire allows the bird vision, which is is what drives their survival.
0: Right. So I know we're kind of in the wiregrass section of the state, and obviously the wiregrass loves that. The longleaf pines do love a good burn more so than your slash and your loblolly. So say if someone's burning properly and they're still seeing a decline in their numbers what's something that may, may be contributing to the decline in numbers whether it be predators or I've even heard that the overfeeding of white-tailed deer with necessarily not treated corn has uh, with alvatoxin has contributed to some of these decline in numbers.
1: Yeah, I mean basically what what we're seeing is that that obviously habitat is is the driving issue. Whether it be just a reduction in quality of habitat, or whether it be a loss of habitat, or even fragmentation of existing habitats. I mean, basically, if you if you look across the southeast, um, we've fragmented larger blocks of, of habitat into smaller pieces. We've we put roads through them. We've put rights of way. Uh, changing land ownership where you have larger pieces of property being split up into smaller ownerships, uh, conversion of hardwood forest to, to pine-dominated forest. So there's a lot of, quote-unquote, habitat things that have, that are contributing to the declines. Obviously, I mean, predation is part of that. One interesting, at least to me, thing is we've largely made better Better predator habitat than we have turkey habitat in in the past few decades, and, and a lot of the things I just mentioned, particularly fragmentation, really benefits predators more so than turkeys. It, it allows these you know these species, smaller you know, I call meso mammals, and basically smaller um, mammalian predators like raccoons and bobcats and coyotes. Uh, fragmentation offers them a really efficient way to hunt and that's not to the to the benefit of of a turkey whether it be an adult or you know a nest the disease issues and and even harvest i mean turkeys are kind of unique in that we harvest males during the peak of the breeding season we there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to, to disease and, and how impactful harvest can be and, and various other things, and those are tough topics to study. But, but when I get asked the question, you know, what, what's number one and number two and then number three, you know, kind of on this list of what, what's driving the declines, there's no question that, that habitat confounded with, with predation issues are, are amongst the top.
0: Right, so for, for our listeners, and I think I've got all four of our native or North American species. So we've got the eastern right here that um, pretty much dominates uh, South Georgia and, and Georgia entirely. And then we down in down in Florida we have the Osceola, then we have the is it the Merriam and the Goulds, or is it the Rio and the Goulds, or am I or two of those one and the same?
1: Well, there, there actually are five. There are five subspecies. You have the eastern, which we have here in Georgia, you have uh, Rio Grandes, which are primarily found in the southern plains, Texas, Oklahoma, southern Kansas. and you have um, you have Merriams, which are more of a upper plains um, mountainous type bird of the west. You have Goulds which are are found in far, far southwest parts of the United States, Arizona and, and New Mexico. They're primarily found in in old Mexico. And then you have Osceolas, which are kind of, you know, a South Florida bird. So those are kind of those are the five subspecies that we have.
0: Very nice. And I've been told in years past that the eastern is the is the hardest to hunt. Is that the truth?
1: In my experience, yes, particularly. Particularly heavily hunted easterns. That that's a that's a different bird compared to the other to the others. I mean, I, I generally think that the eastern subspecies, those two, the Osceola and the Eastern, are, are more difficult to hunt. And I think part of it is just the the landscapes that they inhabit. And you know, it, it's they're primarily in forested areas and. And it's just a—it's a different beast than trying to hunt out west, where you—you've got better vision. You can see birds, you can pattern birds, and scout a little bit more effectively than you can in the east.
0: Right. Well, I hope they're the hardest to hunt because I've been told that, and um, they—they've been tough on me the past few seasons. So if I go elsewhere, they're a little <laughs> easier to chase. They
1: kick, they, they, yeah, they kick my butt too. There's no question.
0: So as far as aging a bird, and I mean. And taking a trophy bird, I mean, it's easier with the whitetail. I think you know you can look at obviously count points and see mass, but with a with a turkey, what, and an aging one, once you've taken one, and say if you've got, I mean, a one inch, one and a half inch spur um, turkey with you know a decent bird, beard length, how how do you age turkeys when you've harvested one?
1: So I don't. It's um, <laughs> a short answer to that. We. There's really not a, a tremendously reliable way to age turkeys. Um, yes, a longer spur is generally uh, indicative of an, a bird older than a shorter spur, but that's not always that's not always true. Um, beard length is irrelevant. Body weight's irrelevant. None of that has any indication of, of the bird's age. So I. To, to answer your question, and, and, and I know all turkey hunters are a bit different. I never worry about it. To me, uh, a turkey that you call up and, and shoot on his turf, and you're blessed to be able to take as a trophy, regardless of how long his beard or his spurs are. And, and so, I've never, honestly, I've never really worried too much about it. I, I just, uh, I just appreciate the, the blessing of being able to harvest one, regardless.
0: Right. Yeah, I've been with some hunters before, and I'm no caller by any means. But they'll say, "Oh, that's a Jake, or that's an old Tom." I guess uh, they can sometimes tell by the the depth of their voice. I guess you like you can, like a a young man and a, a grown man. But um, yeah, if they come can, in, they come in and
1: tell with the gobble for okay. sure. You can you can usually you can usually tell between an adult and a Jake. Um, not always, but you can you can usually identify that you're at least talking about a, a two-year-old bird or older based on their gobble.
0: Right. Well, if they're answering to my calls, they're probably a novice bird because I'm not <laughs> good enough to fool the old times. So, well, before we uh, transition to our second guest, I see on his bio, he has a, uh, what got him into artifact hunting. What got you into chasing wild turkeys and, and loving this uh, piece of wildlife?
1: Yeah, I, I just, I was a, uh... Suburban kid in virginia that that grew up with a a dad that got to hunt on on the weekends and um, I hunted everything that I could possibly hunt, including turkeys and and when I got the opportunity to go to graduate school, I was fortunate to land on a research project that that was focused on turkeys and once I captured the first one uh and put my hands on them I I was fascinated, you know, with the bird and as I've gotten older and conducted research year after year and, and been able to hunt the bird in a lot of the areas that it occurs, it's they've just become a true passion of mine. I'm 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 deeply invested in, in the resource.
0: Yeah, well with every turkey season that goes by I find myself more and more with more and more turkey calls, more and more vests. In the closet, so it's uh, it's slowly putting its grasp on me as well, and rightfully so, because really, uh, it really is exhilarating to get out there and interact with that bird uh, in its prime breeding season. So, For sure. All right, Mr. Chamberlain, we appreciate that. You're welcome to stay on the line. Our next guest is Mr. Kevin Dowdy. Mr. Kevin Dowdy found his first arrowhead when he was six years old with his grandfather while squirrel hunting. He has a passion for arrowheads and artifacts since then. Mr. Dowdy has written and published four arrowhead identification and price guidelines and four volumes of Legends in the Stone Books. He has also maintained and operated an online artifact store since 1998. Mr. Dowdy, welcome.
2: Thank you, Billy, so much for having me.
0: Hey, it's funny being in your studio and you, you calling in, but we greatly appreciate your time today. Uh, since starting this podcast, I've thoroughly enjoyed learning about artifacts from you and, and seeing all that you've collected and so tell everybody kind of more about how you got started, about your, your collection, and about the show you have coming up in the next few weeks.
2: Yes, sir, but I just got to, for, for just a second, I've got to throw something out here for Mike. Okay. If that'll, if that'll be okay.
0: Yes, sir. Now,
2: Mike, I, I always tried to learn how to call a turkey with the a diaphragm call in your mouth. But I have one of these enhanced gag reflexes, and I just couldn't ever master it. So I just figured out I'd just try to do it without a call. I, now I can use a box call and what have you. And I'm not a real serious turkey hunter. I've killed turkeys. But I, Dustin has taken over that role, my oldest son. But I still call, and I love to call, and I love to watch turkeys and take pictures of turkeys. I love it. And As a matter of fact, we watch them almost every single day at my, in my yard. And I love to catch them when they're when they're really receptive to a call, and I'll set out on the back porch and I'll <laughs> and love to get them gobbling and catch them on video and what have you. It's a lot of fun. So I know I know that you guys are passionate about turkey hunting, but I love to watch them and 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 just take video and what have you. It's a great great hobby, and it ties right in with my love for the outdoors. But to answer your question. I actually, my granddad, we used to hunt a lot, he hunted everything birds, we fished a lot, and I did everything with my granddaddy in the summers and what have you and If we ever got out hunting and it got slow, he taught me if we walked fire breaks or whatever, we would look for airheads and I found my first one when I was real young and I wish I knew where it was. We moved quite a bit, and I lost it. But I had it with my coins and my collectibles and what have you. But it's been a lifelong passion. I've always been intrigued by those early hunters. And just coincidentally, I don't know if you guys know this, but they've studied all these these uh, sites where they have had uh, butcher areas by the Native Americans and what have you, the First Americans and what have you. And the second most prolific bone that is recorded is turkey bones, wild turkey bones. How about that? Wow. Now, imagine being able to kill a turkey with primitive weapons, like a bow or an atlatl or what have you. We know how wary they are, and and they didn't have these guns and all the things we have today, and it being the second most prolific bone, it just tells you a little bit about the technology and how they refined their skills. And, you know, probably the best thing that I've ever heard said about how innovative they were and how smart they were is that hunger is a powerful motivator and for them to eat for the original Americans here to eat they had to make use of what they had and they didn't have metal they didn't have metal till probably a thousand years ago when they started messing with copper a little bit up in the Great Lakes region they used flint and they use bone, stone, and wood. And most of the bone and wood items decayed, but most of the stone items we can find, the arrowheads that are left behind by those ancient hunters.
0: So I know on sure. WMAs and, and public pieces of land, you're you're not supposed to mess with artifacts, but if you have your own piece of property and, and you do come across um, an artifact, I mean, is it okay to to pick up? I mean, I assume it is because I mean, you see in most of absolutely. the farmers, they all got a, a trophy case of them.
2: Yeah, it is It is prohibited on public publicly owned lands, but if it's a private property and you have permission to be there, whether you own it or someone has given you permission to be on that property and pick up artifacts, you can absolutely pick them up. Public land is the exception. It is forbidden on public land. It's hard to turn down one if it's laying right there though in plain view, but But it is forbidden to pick it up. But otherwise, it's perfectly legal to pick them up, to possess them. It's perfectly legal to collect them. As a matter of fact, not many people realize it. One of the most prominent collectors in the Deep South was ex-president Jimmy Carter.
0: Okay.
2: (laughs) Jimmy Carter had a sizable collection, and later I think he donated it to maybe one of the local libraries or what have you in the areas around Plains and Sumter County up in that way, but he had quite of an extensive collection that he picked up. A lot of farmers, uh, if you think about it, these fields, and we're farming so much cultivation these days, if you don't pick them up, those harrows and everything that they're using these days to till the land and prepare the land, it's just going to bust them up into, into pieces, and they're basically lost forever. And that craftsmanship and the work and and the skill that they demonstrated by fashioning those objects would be lost
0: right yeah i think that's kind of led to the disappearance of so many of these um uh, rattlesnakes whether it be timber uh timber rattler or your diamondback you just back in the day i used to hear you could go through a peanut field and fill up a five gallon bucket well now they're few and far between and these 30 40 foot wide hairs i think have a lot to do with it nowadays
2: that's exactly right, and a lot of these—I I don't know the exact terminology—but these rototillers and things that they put now to, to bust up the clods and what have you—they used to bottom plow a lot, but with more and more no-till farming, uh, you know, where, where they just don't do any tilling and what have you. Uh, but the bottom plow used to turn up a lot of them, and and very few people bottom plow these days. Yeah. But that you could—if you could get on a fresh site that just been plowed, and a good rain comes up that was always an ideal setting if you had permission to be there and it's funny how you go into these large fields and you may walk a 500 acre field but you only find airhead seems like in one little tiny spot on that property but if you look for that spot it's typically a high a piece of high ground on the property for the most part and if it's available it's typically sandy soil more so than not and it's usually close to a water source. That's typically where you're going to find most of your artifacts is high ground, sandy soil. Now, we're talking ideal ideal location uh, close to a water source. And the things you've got to remember is there were a lot of springs and what have you back in you know, thousands of years ago because these points date back, according to the scientific studies, 12 to 14,000 years ago when climate was a lot different. So what you see as a cypress swamp could have been a crystal clear spring back in the day, you know, hundreds of years ago before erosion, before, you know, the, the the area around it changed and what have you. So water sources were number one thing factor because they had to have water, they didn't have wells, they didn't have running water. And there, our rivers and creeks were the equivalent of our interstates, right? Not just not just for fishing and and hunting, but also for travel.
0: Okay, yeah, for human human travel as well. That's right.
2: That's right. So human travel and and when the water source, especially a good water source, and typically in more modern times, when I say more modern, the last couple thousand years. Uh, you know, when the bow and arrow technology come along, we call them all arrowheads, but most of the things that are arrowheads are usually about an inch long or shorter because they won't fly because of weight on a real arrow. The bow and arrow technology didn't come along until about 3,000 years ago or so. So the, before that, it was spears and atlatls And a lot of what we call arrowheads are actually knives. They were they're fashioned and put on wood or bone handles for knives and for cutting. Here again, they didn't have metal, so they had to cut. They had to they had to scrape hides. They had to butcher and what have you to eat. So, flint survives. If it survives, you can see and get an idea of what the technology they were using to survive and to eat.
0: Now, were the arrowheads made by the the hunters themselves, or did they, were there people that I know? You had the hunters and gatherers, but um, from your research and knowledge. Who 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 crafted? Did they have some one person in the in the tribe, or they would they would quote unquote make the, like, like a blacksmith essentially?
2: Okay, that's that's a really good question. As just like it is today, there are people that are specialized and have different skill sets. And I, am of the belief, and from what we can find, because there's no written history that goes back five, six, seven thousand years ago here, but. I'm of the opinion that there were those that had a special craft and ability, and I think they would literally be the guys who maybe sat around camp that quarried the flint and what have you, and we call it flint, but it's actually chert down here in the deep south. And they may have had a special skill with making and being craftsmen, and I think they did a lot of trading and barter. Let's say this guy's a really good hunter, well, he said, you bring me some meat and I'll make you some more points, that that kind of thing.
0: No and
2: I honestly think because of the skill and the hand-eye coordination that was required that a lot of the really fine, small, what a lot of people call bird tips, the true arrowheads, were probably made by women. I no. think the women had a better skill set uh, and hand-eye coordination maybe than even the guys
0: very nice. Well, I know I don't, um, have, anything to,
2: I don't I, have anything to back that up, but I would tell you that m- most of the time when you look at real fine, tiny, dainty craftsmanship, it seems like the ladies typically do more of that than the guys
0: do. I can agree with that. So, I mean, some of the some of the small tips I found I definitely could not produce, and I have found some larger pieces, and they all seem to be in that uh, area that you described—high uh, pieces on our property. Somewhat near to a swamp and then and, in and sandier soils. I don't know if they just, the sand was able to sift underneath them, they came to the top or what, but um, you described well, the, the sand areas. sand
2: typically, I think the sand has a lot to do with drainage and with pest. You know, they didn't have a, a can of a deep they could spray on for pest and what have you, and the sandy soil typically was better suited for dwelling and of course the hunter gatherers moved around a lot they followed the game a lot but as we got into the agricultural age 45 four to five thousand years ago when that started coming along and they started making pottery and settling down in spots they picked the most advantageous spot for drainage for minimum pest and also pro- that close proximity to water
0: very nice that's that's interesting and i mean spot on you would I mean I have no reason to to disagree with that. So so back to your your artifact show coming up. I definitely want our listeners and everybody in the area of Bainbridge or Southwest Georgia to know about this event coming up. I've seen your flyers. Um you seem extremely fired up about it. So so tell people they've got a, a free time coming up how they can come see the Deep South uh super show.
2: Absolutely, Billy this'll be I think the twenty fourth or twenty fifth show we've had in Bainbridge. We've been putting them on in Bainbridge since the early 90s, and we've had uh, shows at five or six different locations around Bainbridge, and we've outgrown them all. We're now in the Student Wellness Center at Southern Regional Technical College. We previously held them at the Curbo Center, and we outgrew the Curbo Center. We just did not have enough room for all the exhibitors and all the folks that would attend. There will be people coming. Last year we had people come from as far away as Australia, this is the largest artifact show in the southeastern United States. There'll be about 200 tables, and they will be slam-packed full with artifacts found in the deep south. There'll be fossils there, megalodon teeth, mastodon, woolly mammoth teeth, woolly mammoth tusk sections. There'll be paper uh, sections. There'll be all kinds of faint animal bones that are found right here in the Flint River, which, by the way... You're not supposed to pick up arrowheads or artifacts in the Flint River, but you can pick up fossils. So you can pick up shark's teeth. You can pick up woolly woolly, uh, mammoth and mastodon teeth, and they do happen right there in the Flint River.
0: Yep. Growing up um, in middle school, I had a classmate whose father was a big artifact hunter like yourself, and I was fortunate to go over their house and farm one day, and um, sure enough, there were shark teeth and, mastodon teeth uh, from the flint river and it 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 took me a hard hard minute to wrap my mind around the fact that those animals were swimming and walking around right here in southwest georgia Um, but well we even had
2: we even had camels i don't think most people know that but south georgia had camels at one time
0: that that's the first i've heard of that so
2: yes they find camel's teeth in the flint river and uh there's a three-toed horse called an equus They also roamed southwest Georgia, and their fossils are found right here as
0: well. That's fascinating. Well, I'm intrigued. I probably will be there at the show. Um, What what exact date is again, the 24th and 25th?
2: No, sir, it's the third day of February. It's the first Saturday. It's from 8 until 2. I would tell you, if you're mildly interested, bring the kids, grandkids, bring anybody you can. Kids get in absolutely free. There's a minimum $5 admission fee. But you'll see more artifacts on display at this show than you'll see at the Smithsonian or at the Sears Museum, any of the biggest museums in the country. You'll see 10 times more artifacts on display at this show than you'll see at any museum in the country because I've traveled and went to those museums, and unfortunately, most of the things they have are locked away in a basement, nobody ever gets to see them, and they display a minuscule amount, whereas collectors that have found them want to share them and want people to see them, and they want to teach kids, they want folks to come by and learn. It's a great hobby. It's family-oriented hobby. It's a great pastime. It's good exercise. And you're learning the whole time about the culture and the typology and how old they are. Some artifacts, some arrowheads that I have, and and some other collectors will have. There'll be anywhere from ten to twelve thousand years old. When you think about picking up something that old that somebody hasn't had in their hand, a human being hasn't had in their hand for possibly ten to twelve thousand years, it is an amazing experience.
0: Yeah, that gives me chills when you word it like that. So, I've got a few. I don't have many, but I'll. Uh, I plan to see you there on the third day of February. I appreciate the invite, and if you're listening, please come out and. Check out Mr. Dowdy's and everybody else's artifact stockpile because it really is something to see.
2: Yes, so bring your treasures. There will be people there who are uh, some of the most foremost authorities in the country on typology and values and what have you because they do have value. And because they have value, that preservation happens like it does. So, you know, some people buy, some sell, some trade, some won't buy won't buy or sell anything. They only are interested in the things they found. So to each his own on that, but it is a fascinating hobby, and it is a respect to those who came before us, those that eked out an existence with the primitive things they had. It's an amazing thing when you see it on the scale that you'll be able to experience on February 3rd, Southern Regional Technical College, and the uh, Student Wellness Center, it's the big gymnasium there. It'll be it'll be packed.
0: Awesome. Mr. Michael and Mr. Kevin, that concludes our podcast today. I appreciate you both for um, hopping on the line and, and sharing your knowledge of the wild turkey and artifacts in southwest Georgia. For more information, you can visit our webpage at swgafarmcredit.com. Make sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite app to get notified of new episodes and follow us on Facebook and Instagram for great industry resources. Thanks for listening, and thanks again, Mr. Michael and Mr. Kevin.